The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. This episode is brought to you by J. Crew. This spring, J. Crew is telling a linen love story. From perfectly rumpled beach cover-ups and effortlessly sexy suiting to button-up shirts from the world-famous Baird McNutt Mill in Ireland, the new J. Crew collection is made to be shared, lived in, and loved for decades and generations to come. Shop linen like you've never seen it. And more new arrivals for spring 2024 at jcrew.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Despite motherhood being viewed as a fundamental part of a woman's destiny in the 19th century, pregnancy, birth and the postnatal experience is often left out of written histories of the period. Dr Jessica Cox is the author of a new book, Confinement, and from Queen Victoria's birthing room to advice surrounding breastfeeding, she speaks to Lauren Good about the stories of Georgian and Victorian motherhood that have been overlooked. Jessica, we're discussing your new book today, Confinement, The Hidden History of Maternal Bodies in 19th Century Britain. What brought you to write this? Well, I've worked on the Victorian period for a very long time in my research and teaching, But I'd never really looked at the experience of motherhood, maternity, until I had my own children. And that really sort of got me thinking about it, particularly after the birth of my third child, who was delivered by emergency C-section. And the more I looked into it, the more I realised that we wouldn't have survived a birth in the 19th century. So I became really interested in the subject. And when I looked around, there was surprisingly little on women's experience of maternity, pregnancy, childbirth in the 19th century. So that's where the book originated from. You explain in your book that it's easier to examine the experiences of wealthier women due to there being more records and sources such as diaries. Do you think these documents being more readily available has affected the modern historian's perception of experiences surrounding pregnancy at this time? 
Yes, I think there's a broader issue in terms of how we understand history and particularly social history through the documents that are available to us. So when I first started working on the book, I really wanted to foreground women's stories, ideally in their own words, looking at letters and diaries, life writing, alongside medical literature and advice literature, which I think can give quite a skewed image of how women experience maternity. And I was also very keen to include women from all kinds of different backgrounds, different social backgrounds in particular. But of course, when you get to the archives, the archives are dominated, um, particularly by the upper classes, the aristocracy who leave behind them estates that are filled with written records, diaries, journals, as well as sort of public records about those families as well. And The archives for particularly the working classes are far more limited. Occasionally in biography, autobiographies, particularly towards the late Victorian period, there's an increase in uh, the number of sort of life writing from the working classes that's available. But so much of it kind of falls between the cracks. And I did go back to those records, to pauper letters, for example, to the um, workhouse archives and so forth. But the detail, the detail, and particularly the first person accounts, you know, come from particularly the upper classes. So Queen Victoria, as you would imagine, mother of nine children, features very, very heavily in the book because she leaves behind her own journals, uh, a whole wealth of letters. And then we have also medical records pertaining to the birth of her children and so forth as well. So there's a there's a real danger of reading into the experience of middle and upper class women and drawing conclusions about how maternity was experienced in the 19th century that overlooks the quite different experiences often of the working classes, the poorer classes of society. So it was something that I had in mind while I was writing the book and I tried really hard to to address and to try and provide some balance in that respect. Along with these records, you also refer to guides available to women at the time What was some of the advice women were given during pregnancy? So particularly in the Victorian period, there was an explosion really in the marketplace for advice literature. And a lot of this advice literature is directed at women. And lots of that is directed specifically at mothers. So there's a huge amount of material available. It's comparable in some respects to today, you know, in terms of the amount of advice women were getting around pregnancy, the contradictory advice that they would sometimes receive and the um, misinformation that was sometimes included in in the advice literature, which we now see to some extent uh, in the internet age. So they were given advice on almost every aspect of motherhood from really conception through to delivery and then infant care as well. Some of it is fairly sound advice and some of it, as you can imagine, is not really. So they were advised on almost every aspect of pregnancy. For instance, the advice literature covers dress, so what to wear, in particular no tight clothing, diet, what to eat, how often to eat, exercise, washing, sleep, uh, as well as the treatment of sort of the various ailments of pregnancy. There's a real sort of paradox in the fact that motherhood was viewed as you know, women's destiny. It was the role that they were biologically designed to fulfill. But they were also seen as being in need of advice on how to fulfill that role. So there's there's a sense that they're being told how to do things. Much of the advice literature is written not by women, but by medical men. So there's a real sort of 
sense of a lack of autonomy or agency, a real sense that there was a perception that women needed to be told how to behave. Uh, it's also worth stressing that the advice literature, the market for advice literature was, was really targeting middle and upper class readers. So those who were literate, those who had disposable income to purchase these works, and those who had the time to, to sit and read them as well. So there's a class issue which feeds into the advice that women were being given or had access to uh, during this time as well. Amongst this advice, are there any parallels between that given to women then and now? Yeah, absolutely. As I said, there's there's quite a lot of sort of conflicting advice. There is misinformation, which I think has become more of an issue since the, the development and the expansion of, of, of the internet, you know, how to judge what's appropriate and what's not. And then there's also that sense that still, I think, that women need are in need of advice. And there's certain particular, I think, ideologies around motherhood that persist today. So, you know, one particular issue is this idea that anyone who ever, who's ever been pregnant will have experienced people saying, oh, you know, don't worry or don't be stressed. It's bad for the baby, you know, and, and that kind of advice, particularly around managing your emotions as an expectant mother, I notice is very sort of clear parallels today. Some of the advice I'm, I'm glad to say has changed. As you can imagine, some of it was was really quite out there. So, you know, some of it was 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 just sort of patently kind of ridiculous and with no scientific basis. So, for example, women were advised against taking shower baths. They were told that it might cause such a shock that it could induce miscarriage. There was lots of advice about getting plenty of fresh air, which is probably pretty sound advice. But there was this idea that a lack of fresh air might cause women's blood to become impure. Lots and lots of advice on what to eat and what wasn't acceptable. Strangely, a number of advice books mention that women should avoid rich pastries in particular whilst pregnant, and then some which potentially is going to be dangerous. So that there was one advice book in particular which pointed to the potential problems women might experience with their teeth during pregnancy, and it advised that women should avoid having teeth extracted whilst pregnant suggesting that this might cause miscarriage. And as an alternative, in order to manage the pain caused by toothache, it recommended a solution of cocaine. So that potentially not sound, not particularly useful advice. Other questionable advice related to the postnatal period, to infant care. Um, so wet nursing was still relatively common. There's lots of advice on the type of woman who makes a suitable wet nurse and plenty on avoiding redheads, for example, um, who are seen to have too kind of fiery a temper to make a good wet nurse. Advice on who should and shouldn't be in the birthing room, the hiring of nurses. One advice book suggests that fat dumplings of nurses should be avoided. So yeah, some of it, some of it sounds, some of it extremely questionable. We're often reminded by period dramas and literature of the uncomfortable clothes that women had to deal with as well during this period in history. How did women adjust their clothing during pregnancy? So in the Victorian period in particular, corsets were commonly worn, of course, uh, and these could be extremely constricting in terms of the female body, in terms of the torso, and there's some evidence of potentially physical damage, but more evidence of lots and lots of kind of dire warnings about what the corset might do, particularly to um, the pregnant body. Lots and lots of the advice books suggest tightly fastened garments might lead to miscarriage um, or to damage to the unborn child. They also point to a risk in terms of breastfeeding if the nipples are constricted in tight clothing as well. And there's also a bit of a question mark, given the sort of general acceptance that tight clothing was bad for 
the pregnant body of why women might want to wear tight clothing throughout their pregnancies. But of course, unlike today, there was an emphasis on concealing the pregnant body, disguising it, and tight clothing was often, was obviously one way of doing that as well. Let's move on now. We've just talked about pregnancy. Uh, Let's talk about childbirth in the 19th century. A moment I found particularly fascinating when reading your book, and I think it's a good point to begin our discussion of this section of the podcast, is your statement that there was then nothing approaching a universal experience of childbirth in Britain. Could you please elaborate on the reasons for this? Yes, I think partly it came from my own sense. I've I've got three children and had three sort of wildly different experiences in terms of each of their births. So I think today it remains the case that women experience childbirth in very, very different ways, you know, at different points in their life compared to other women. But there are also sort of standards which we're, I suppose, used to today in terms of the care that we're entitled to, the medical care that we receive, the NHS, you know, the fact most women give birth in hospital in Britain today and so forth. And some of those factors were obviously different in the 19th century. So there were sort of multiple factors at play. There's women's personal health and your individual health status, which obviously could be impacted by things like poverty, and social status and so forth. So rickets was was really quite common in the 19th century. And it was, in many respects, a condition of poverty uh, impacted by poor diet, by lack of access to sunlight and so forth. It could cause defamation of the pelvis, which would make childbirth incredibly difficult. And for some women, it meant that they couldn't deliver live children and, and they would have to undergo these destructive operations if they did fall pregnant. On top of that, there's the different types of medical care that were available. And those ranged from the doctors, the sort of highest paid, most respectable doctors of the day, through to, for some people, the matron in a workhouse, a neighbour, somebody without any medical training. Medical training, of course, didn't guarantee safe delivery by any stretch of the imagination. There were limitations in terms of medical knowledge, particularly in the early decades of the 19th century when there was very limited understanding around the spread of infection. So you would have doctors moving from patient to patient without washing their hands, in some cases performing post-mortems and then going on to deliver children. And that was one of the reasons for the spread of peripheral fever, which was a major cause of maternal mortality. So things like that could affect women's experience of childbirth as well. So one successful delivery obviously didn't guarantee another. You know, you think of somebody like Mary Wollstonecraft in the late 19th century, who had a very easy time of it with her first child, and then died from peripheral fever shortly after the birth of um, her second child, Mary Shelley, who had gone to write um, Frankenstein. Uh, What I really wanted to get at in the book was to identify some of these individual stories. So they're obviously a kind of tiny snapshot when we think about the millions of babies born in Britain in the 19th century. But I was really keen to uncover the experience of women in the birthing room. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter, because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com extra. 
Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. This episode is brought to you by St. James Iced Tea. A new line of organic, flavor-packed iced tea with only 0 to 4 grams of sugar, naturally occurring antioxidants, and a caffeine amount equivalent to only a half a cup of coffee. Discover six flavors, all organic and packaged for minimal environmental impact. Buy now on Amazon and use code TEAPARTY20 for 20% off. And you mention when you discuss these individual stories that there's a clear reluctance to discuss birth at this time, often using euphemistic terms, even you say in personal letters. How informed due to this were women about labour and delivery? So this is a really interesting question. When I started researching the book, the sense that I had was that pregnancy and childbirth are often obscured in public discourses. So, you know, we take the Victorian novel as an example. Babies tend to just appear. You know, there's no reference to pregnancy, no reference to childbirth except for in a a handful of cases. And then, as you say, it's discussed in very kind of euphemistic terms. So I was sort of prepared for that aspect in terms of, of the research that I was doing. I was slightly more surprised to find that advice books, which are specifically targeting pregnant women, often skimmed over the actual birth. So, you know, in one example, it talks about pregnancy in detail, gives lots of advice on how women should look after themselves during pregnancy. Then it mentions the onset of labour without giving any indication of what the symptoms of that might be. And then the next section is on lactation. So there's a sort of, it's almost as though somebody is left a section out of the book. Towards the end of the 19th century, advice literature becomes a little bit more explicit in terms of detailing the symptoms of labour and talking a bit more about delivery. And there's, there's one or two examples where it gives very sort of clear advice on what's going to happen. But it's very clear that in public discourses, there's a reluctance to talk explicitly about childbirth and particularly delivery. What I expected to find was that there would be less reluctance perhaps in letters and diaries, and also perhaps some evidence of that sort of oral communication between women, that there were women who knew what was going to happen because they'd had conversations with their own mothers or with family members or friends or neighbours and so forth. So what I was quite surprised to find was evidence of a number of women who clearly went into labour with no idea of where the baby was going to come from. And I, I I was trying to imagine what that must have been like, you know, the horror of um, going into labour, delivering a child and having no idea what's happening to your body. Did this discussion of the maternal experience vary at all between classes? It's an interesting question because I think perhaps there might be an assumption that it's something which the middle classes and the upper classes might be more reluctant to talk about because we have this idea of them as being sort of slightly more prudish as a consequence of ideas around decorum and respectability and so forth. But there was there was certainly some evidence that women from all classes sometimes experience this kind of ignorance around childbirth. 
uh, as I mentioned earlier, women from the poorer classes were less likely to have access to advice literature. So once advice literature starts giving a little bit more information about childbirth, that information was potentially more accessible from for the middle classes and the upper classes. But obviously, when you've got advice books which don't explain what happens, then then they're not particularly useful in that respect. So it seems, I think, that amongst all classes, at least some women were kept in the dark about the realities of childbirth. There is one uh, incredible account from a woman who actually had her children in the early 20th century, so just slightly after the period in which with which I was mainly concerned. But she had married at 17, and eventually she'd had nine children. And she talks about the fact in a uh, oral autobiography, which she um, recorded some years later, looking back on her life, she talks about the fact that when she got married, she didn't know where the baby came from. She says that her mother never told her anything about this. And she gives this description of going into labour with her first baby, feeling a pain and her mother saying to her, you're going to have a baby, you know that, don't you? And her saying, no, I don't know. And then asking her mother where the baby was going to come from and asking if it came uh, out of the navel, thinking that she was going to have to be cut open in order for the child to be delivered. And then her mother telling her, no, it comes from where it went in. And her husband then walks into the room and she sends him away again because she's clearly very kind of horrified and angry with him. So, you know, that was that's a sort of woman from the sort of poorer classes, from the working classes. But then you have similar stories from amongst the aristocracy as well. So Queen Victoria, for instance, after the marriage of her eldest daughter, the Princess Royal, who married very young at the age of 17 and had children then very young. Queen Victoria, in a letter, advises her eldest daughter not to tell her sister too much about the details uh, of these subjects she refers to it as. She says, Alice, Princess Alice, has the greatest horror of having children and would rather have none. So I'm very anxious she should know as little about the inevitable miseries as possible. So, you know, it's better for women not to know because then, you know, they might not marry and have children if they know how horrific it could be. You've just mentioned Queen Victoria there and you discuss in your book the presence of Prince Albert in the delivery room when she has their children. How common was this presence of a woman's husband during birth? So again, this is a really interesting question. There's a bit of a contradiction between what women are advised to do and what was evidently happening in reality. So most advice books that comment on this issue advise against having husbands in the room. And from reading between the lines, it seems that that, in a sense, is a sort of matter of decorum. Uh, so one advice book, for example, suggests the husband should only be let in once all of the soiled clothes have been cleared away. So this idea that childbirth is too messy for men, you know, that they, they shouldn't be present. Um, and they're quite sort of firm on this issue in, in advising women not to have their husbands present. And they give lots of advice on who should be there instead. And, you know, it should be a woman who's a mother herself, not a single woman, obviously, um, not the grandmother of the of the baby because they're prone to get too anxious and so on. But it's very clear that um, many women did have their husbands with them. Queen Victoria writes that in, in her journal after the birth of her eldest son, who went on to become Edward VII, I don't know what I should have done, but for the great comfort and support my beloved Albert was to me during the whole time. Uh, and we see similar accounts. Uh, John Russell, the Vice Count Amberley, it was clearly close at hand. He's he's there when the doctor announces that the baby's a boy. So clearly it was fairly common for, for husbands to be close at hand. And during these deliveries, what pain relief was available to women? So there was a big debate over pain relief 
during childbirth in the 19th century. For around the first half of the period, the options were fairly limited. You know, there was opiates, brandy. The use of those was strongly discouraged ether. And then from the mid-19th century onwards, chloroform became widely available and was famously used by Queen Victoria in the birth of her youngest two children. But there was a lot of opposition to using pain relief Lots of the advice literature comments on this. It's particularly interesting, I think, when we think about childbirth today, because extreme pain in childbirth is associated with the onset of symptoms of postnatal PTSD. Most women in the 19th century, even those undergoing extremely long labours, extremely difficult deliveries, instrumental deliveries that might involve doctors using instruments for hours at a time, would receive little pain relief. Pain relief was also something, particularly after the introduction of chloroform, that was very much impacted by access to disposable income. You know, if you had the money to pay doctors to pay for pain relief. Chloroform was potentially dangerous for mother and child. There was quite a lot of debate over how much should be administered. It had to be administered very carefully. There are accounts of women giving birth under the influence of chloroform who are essentially unconscious so have no knowledge of anything that's happening. Queen Victoria was a huge fan and so I think sort of promoted it to some extent as well and made it popular. But, you know, as I say, for for many women, pain relief wasn't an option. So, you know, they just had to manage as best they could. And now let's move on to the postnatal experience of women in this period. There's so much talk around the pressures on modern women to, as people term it, bounce back Were pressures like this also present in the 19th century? Yeah, absolutely. There was some pressure for women to maintain the figures following the births of children. But if we look at the sort of ideologies around femininity from the time, um, the sort of feminine ideals that were perpetuated, and uh, as well as the kind of stereotypes, you've got a kind of clear difference between, if you like, the maiden and the matron. And there's a sort of expectation that once you've had a number of children, of course, you know, that that pressure to look young, I think, was slightly different. There was not an acceptance of of women ageing because there was often sort of quite a dismissive attitude to older women. But certainly there wasn't the expectation that you could look the same way to some extent. Having said that, you do also find references to things women can do to try and maintain their figure. So, you know, the Victorian period in particular, there's there's a kind of huge marketplace, increasingly expanding marketplace for all kinds of devices and things that might help women. Um, And amongst those were abdominal belts, which could be used to help maintain the figure. And there's some pressure to avoid ending up with a particularly ungainly or unsightly figure following childbirth. So abdominal belts were designed to address the issue. They're often advertised in journals, particularly in those kind of latter decades of the period. So particularly in the latter decades of the period, lots of different abdominal belts were available, were marketed to women in women's magazines and journals and so forth. And in one of these adverts, uh, it states that nothing tends to age a woman so much as the loss of symmetry of figure. And claims that through using these belts, a woman may almost retain her maiden symmetry of figure, even though the mother of a large family. So some pressure, but slightly different, I think, to today. And another pressure that is often discussed is that surrounding breastfeeding. What were the attitudes surrounding this in the 19th century? So lots of parallels with today in some respects. You know, this this often um, quite fractious debate over the use of breast or bottle that we see today is evident in Victorian discourses around infant feeding. The stakes were sort of slightly different 
in the 19th century. So today, you know, women have autonomy and choice. Bottle feeding, by and large, is an extremely safe way to feed your child. There's lots of understanding about the need for cleanliness and hygiene practices in order to prevent germs entering the feeding equipment and so forth, the need for sterilisation and so on. Very, very limited knowledge from much of the period around those issues, so particularly the spread of germs. And the consequence of this is that those infants who were hand-fed, so bottle or spoon-fed, were often fed using equipment that hadn't been cleaned properly or food, milk, water that was potentially contaminated. So it meant that artificial, often referred to as artificial feeding, was often much riskier. And if you look at some of the statistics from the time, you can see that the outcomes for babies who are fed by hand is much poorer than for those who are breastfed. So the pressure to breastfeed, I think, has a slightly different context in that respect. But it's also constructed as a woman's duty, a mother's duty, often as a kind of religious duty to nurse your own child. And of course, when it came to breastfeeding, maternal breastfeeding was not the only option because wet nursing was still fairly commonly used, and particularly amongst the upper classes. So Queen Victoria is a, is a um, good example of that. She absolutely refused to consider breastfeeding her own children. She was horrified when two of her daughters breastfed their own children. She saw it as an activity that was close to a sort of animal-like activity and therefore should be performed by a woman who was more animal-like, in other words, a woman from the poorer classes of society. So lots of sort of very problematic um, statements. She's rumoured to have named a, a cow in the royal dairy after one of her daughters after she ignored her advice not to breastfeed. And of course, it's really interesting because Queen Victoria, I mean, she didn't really enjoy any of the physical aspects of maternity. So she didn't enjoy being pregnant, childbirth, the recovery period, which she often found extremely difficult, suffering at um, some points from um, periods of postnatal depression. And she really sort of resented the number of pregnancies that she experienced, and in particular falling pregnant um, so quickly after the arrival of uh, another child. There's, there's often a very kind of small gap, less than a year in some cases. And of course, there's very, very limited knowledge about how to prevent pregnancy. And it depends often on the husband being willing to employ contraception and so forth. So the irony is that if Victoria had breastfed some of her own children, she may have experienced fewer pregnancies because you know, regular breastfeeding can be effective as a form of contraception, which there's some evidence that some women were aware of this. In some cases that women deliberately fed their children for three or four years in order to try and prevent future pregnancies. So yeah, I mean, lots of debate over it. The figure of the wet nurse became quite controversial. There was a lot of anxiety about the idea of the criminal wet nurse, and particularly the idea that there may be women who are deliberately falling pregnant and then abandoning or even murdering their offspring in order that they could then get work as a wet nurse, because obviously in order to breastfeed, you had to have delivered a child yourself first. Uh, and Queen Victoria got caught up in something of a scandal with the wet nurse of the Prince of Wales, who was dismissed from service. And we don't exactly know the reasons why. There's rumours it was to do with drunkenness or possibly to do with the wet nurse's relationships, relations with her husband, because wet nurses were advised against having sex whilst they were breastfeeding, as were nursing mothers sometimes. So 20 or so years later, this woman, Mary Ann Bruff, murdered six of her own children uh, before trying to cut her own throat. There's a lot of discourse around breast milk 
in relation to the potential influence it has on the child. So a lot of the debates about the type of woman that should be hired as a wet nurse relate to the fact that if there's an influence that occurs through the milk, that that needs to be a kind of positive influence. So, of course, the idea that you have this criminal wet nurse who goes on to murder six of her own children, although, as I say, it was many years after she worked as a wet nurse for the Prince of Wales, was potentially a source of anxiety in terms of the influence her milk may have had on the child. So, yeah, lots of lots of debate over breast and bottle feeding, the dangers of, of um, hand feeding. And most of the public discourses encourage maternal breastfeeding as the ideal. You mentioned that Queen Victoria is thought to have experienced postnatal depression. How were these sort of conditions approached at the time? So it varies. In extreme cases where women were suffering from a more extreme form of postnatal mental illness, so postnatal psychosis, for example, they often received treatment, um, sometimes would be uh, taken to asylums. There's a number of tragic cases of women who enter a period of psychosis following the birth of their child uh, and then end up in an asylum for very many years, sometimes for the rest of their lives. It was often referred to as peripheral mania at the time, and there was a very limited understanding of what caused it. But the period following childbirth was seen to be a particularly vulnerable one for women. So when we talk, the book is obviously called Confinement, which refers to that period in which women were essentially confined to their room following the birth of their child. So most advice literature recommends that women don't leave, even leave the bedchamber for 14 days, that they don't read or write for a number of days. And you can see evidence of women following that advice when you look at journals and diaries. So Queen Victoria's diary, always there's always a two-week break following the birth of a child before she resumes writing again. In Lady Amberley's diary, her husband writes the diary in the days and weeks immediately following the birth. And that was partly to do with a perception that women's minds were particularly vulnerable following childbirth, as well as their bodies. So it wasn't just about physical recovery, but about women's mental state as well. So in that respect, there is sort of some understanding. There's an irony, though, in that for many women, Queen Victoria included, um, and possibly Catherine Dickens as well, that the heavy restrictions that were placed on women in the postnatal period actually contributed in some ways to the onset of postnatal depression. So, you know, the fact that they had barely any contact with other people, they weren't allowed to even read a book to write, but simply to be confined in a room alone or perhaps with a servant, not even necessarily with with much contact with the child. You often would have servants looking after the baby and perhaps just bringing the baby to feed and so forth. And certainly Victoria always writes of her relief once that period is over and that she's able to go out of the house again and um, see people and experience fresh air and so forth. Uh, so potentially the guidance that, that women were kind of encouraged to follow had the opposite effect to what was intended in some cases. How much did this period of confinement aid the physical healing of women after childbirth? So for many women, recovery from childbirth might be fairly straightforward. For others, it would be more complicated. And, you know, again, that depends on the particular experience of childbirth. And, and we see that today, you know, after I had my first child, I had a very quick recovery. And, and the third one, I felt like I'd been hit by a bus. It was awful. So women experience physical recovery in different ways, depending on the um, factors that had affected the birth. But women who experienced instrumental deliveries, so forceps were used throughout the period, could face very, very difficult recoveries. And in some t some cases, 
long-term, very severe health problems as a consequence of damage that was done, internal damage that was caused by these instrumental deliveries. Uh, there's a number of tragic cases I came across where women had been, you know, had had their insides essentially torn to pieces during these instrumental deliveries. It's usually by the long forceps and left with severe incontinence, for example. There was two cases I found where um, the woman's husbands had subsequently left them. And there seemed to be a kind of correlation between those two facts that they were left severely incontinent and the husbands had subsequently abandoned them. So it could be extremely difficult. And there were also... In some cases, longer term risks. So having a large number of children, there were obviously a number of uh, women who had very, very large families. I think there was one woman I came across who had 33 children, which seems just extraordinary. But even sort of nine children as Queen Victoria had or, you know, the Darwins and the Dickens both had 10 children. That could have longer term health consequences. So things like prolapse, for example, which might be sort of manageable, but women would would subsequently have to live with. There was not necessarily any kind of treatment. But the cervical cancer, for instance, which Catherine Dickens eventually died from, was potentially caused by having so many children. There was a there was a link between a large number of children and, and um cervical cancer. So as I say, varied from woman to woman, um, sometimes straightforward, but sometimes women were beset by physical and or mental health problems following childbirth. And finally, Jessica, considering all the research you've completed on this topic, what do you think we can learn from these attitudes towards maternity in the 19th century? So I think perhaps when I started, you kind of think, well, the whole experience of maternity has been transformed, you know, by developments in medical knowledge, uh, by the introduction of the NHS, women's access to healthcare, a wider understanding of pregnancy and childbirth, a, a greater willingness to talk about pregnancy and childbirth, greater emphasis on women's choices and autonomy. But then you come across these parallels and, and things were were kind of popping up in the news, particularly, of course, in relation to the restrictions that were being placed on women's right to abortions, for example, in America while I was completing the book. And I think it made me realise that actually, you know, some of these issues we're still dealing with, some of these debates that were taking place in the 19th century are still ongoing. So, you know, many of the sort of tragic cases that I uncovered, the stories that I uncovered for the book, related to women's lack of autonomy, you know, their inability to choose whether to have children, when to have them, how to have the children um, around delivery and so forth, whether to proceed with the pregnancy. Abortion was obviously criminalised at the time in Britain, but was widely practised, particularly as um, contraception was unreliable and many women didn't have access to the knowledge even that would allow them to prevent a pregnancy. So in some cases, it was easier to deal with pregnancy by terminating an early pregnancy than it was to prevent pregnancy. You see what I mean? So it felt to me at various points that actually maybe we haven't progressed as far as we should have done. Maybe the rights that we perhaps take for granted are not kind of set in stone. I think we've seen evidence of that in some of the developments in America. And I think as well in recent years, there's been more efforts made to break some of the cultural silences around some of the difficult issues relating to maternity. So I'm thinking about abortion, but also infertility and miscarriage. And there's still, I think, almost an expectation, particularly with miscarriage and infertility, that women will kind of suffer in silence, that it's not something that's spoken about necessarily openly. As I said, it's it's been 
I think, really positive to see that changing slightly. And you've seen a number of public figures talking openly about their experiences and so forth. But in some respects, I think those cultural silences are still sort of quite pervasive and we can kind of trace those back um, to the 19th century. And I would also say that when you read about the medical care or lack of care that some women experienced in the 19th century, it did make me very, very grateful for the NHS and really emphasised, I think, the need to protect the NHS and, you know, on the whole, the, the amazing service it provides to women. Dr. Jessica Cox is the author of Confinement, The Hidden History of Maternal Bodies in 19th Century Britain. If you're intrigued to find out more about the history of pregnancy, we also spoke to Dr. Sarah Reid on the podcast about giving birth in the 17th century. Just search for giving birth in the 17th century in your podcast feeds to bring that up. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.